0: Welcome to Live Greater, a health and wellness podcast brought to you by the University of Maryland Medical System. We put knowledge and care within reach so you have everything you need to live your life to the fullest. This podcast is sponsored by UM Capital Region Health. Most people have probably heard of both cardiac arrests and heart attacks, but do you know the difference? In this podcast, Dr. Clarence Finley, a coronary and structural heart disease specialist at UM Capital Region Health, talks about the difference between the two events, ways to prevent them, what to do if someone is having one, and much more. Doctor, it's so great to have your time today. I know you're uh, juggling patients and headed into surgery, so really appreciate you making the time. You know, I think a lot of us uh, use cardiac arrest and heart attack sort of interchangeably, and I'm not sure if that's correct or not, because so many of us use them as if they're the same thing, and I guess I want to ask, are they the same thing?
1: The way that I think about it is heart attack oftentimes is a precursor to cardiac arrest. So, you know, a heart attack oftentimes occurs in a setting of a narrowing or, or, or complete blockage of a heart artery. And you could imagine that if you have a blockage, you're not getting blood flow past the blockage. uh, And with that blood flow comes oxygen and nutrients that are unable to get to certain portions of the heart. And sometimes the heart notices that it's not getting the nutrients and blood flow uh, and then becomes irritated. And when it becomes irritated, it develops or degenerates into an abnormal heart rhythm. Sometimes we call ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. It's very akin to when we used to watch ER as kids or or some of these doctor shows when they're shocking patients, right? So it's a, a rhythm that it degenerates. And that rhythm does not allow blood flow to leave the heart and actually supply the brain, the, the other organs uh, in, in the body. And that leads to people actually arresting, passing out, falling out altogether and not waking up, unless that rhythm either returns to spontaneous circulation or brings back a normal rhythm that actually is able to provide blood flow to the rest of the body. And oftentimes, we can help that process by shocking these patients and moving forward. So again, the way to think about it is a heart attack is specifically a blockage in the heart artery, in which case the heart doesn't like it. And when things uh, persist, the heart can sometimes develop an abnormal heart rhythm that doesn't allow blood flow to get out of the heart into other places that it needs to go, like the brain, the kidneys, internal organs, patients pass out, uh, and then we work to try to get uh, back what we call a perfusing rhythm or a rhythm that enables blood flow to leave the heart appropriately.
0: What are some of the most common misconceptions about cardiac arrest or heart attacks?
1: I think oftentimes people, prior to getting to the point where they develop a heart attack, they are experience symptoms and those symptoms they oftentimes will attribute to things like old age or indigestion they may notice that, hey, I was able to walk up these flight of steps without having to stop halfway through or without having any chest discomfort or a significant amount of shortness of breath, but now I am. Maybe that difference is old age. And I think uh, that's a huge misconception. I ask a lot of my patients to ensure that they get to know their body and have a sense as to where they were last year. So last year, could you walk up those five steps? And if they say yes, then they should be able to still do it uh, this year. And if they can't, something acute, something immediately wrong is going on, and and that's something that we need to uh, address. And so I think that's the most important thing is not – Um, attributing your symptoms to just old age or getting older, sometimes there are actually things that are going on that need uh, to be addressed. So I would say those the biggest misconceptions surrounding uh, a heart attack. We also have some patients who go through a heart attack, they get treated and you can oftentimes get treated either with a stent, sometimes with just medications and then sometimes with actually needing a heart bypass surgery uh, and they'll see the doctor and they'll go through that process and then a couple years later they feel fine and so they think they don't need to see a cardiologist anymore. And what I oftentimes remind my patients is once they go through their process and have a heart attack, they should have a lifelong, at least annual relationship meeting with a cardiologist just to ensure that everything is trending in the right direction. And so those, I think, would be two of the main misconceptions that I hear out in the field a lot.
0: Yeah, and in doing some research here, I was reading, and I found that according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, African Americans are 30% more likely to die from heart disease than non-Hispanic whites. So I want to ask you, what factors may be contributing to that uh, pretty wide health disparity?
1: Some of it is what we just touched upon. So it's not paying attention to your symptoms and not accessing care when you need to, or when you should, to try to stop things before they develop to a point where things can be somewhat dire and I think that's a major issue. The other things to consider are that to a certain extent, certain populations, black and brown in particular, are a little predisposed and when I say predisposed, they tend to have other comorbid diseases that put them at higher likelihood of going on to having heart disease and cardiac arrest and myocardial infarctions or heart attacks. In particular, we talk about diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And sometimes even diet, so the type of diet, you know, a little higher uh, in fat, higher in cholesterol higher in in simple sugars, processed sugars, that oftentimes will lead to patients obviously having a high risk of developing a heart attack. And if they themselves are individuals who may be ignoring a lot of the symptoms or maybe not aware of what the symptoms are, then we could potentially create a scenario where they are starting behind the eight ball when they do finally get to the point where they need to seek care. And so, again, I think it revolves around this whole notion of recognizing these signs and symptoms that we should touch upon throughout this broadcast and then seeking out care as needed.
0: Yeah, I think you're so right. Recognizing those signs and symptoms early, uh, seeing our doctors, seeing specialists like yourself early in the process. And uh, doctor, you mentioned ER earlier, and I used to watch, maybe I'm a bit older than you, but I used to watch Sanford and Son when I was a kid. And one of the running jokes on there, Red Fox would always be having heart attacks. And he would clutch his chest and he would say, I'm having the big one. And I know that that's TV and it's a sitcom. I want to ask you in reality, what happens to folks when they have heart attacks and do they present differently for men and women?
1: I'll start by saying generally there are some warning symptoms that uh, start to develop. In particular, what you'll find is patients will complain uh, or experience some form of chest discomfort. It may not be frank pain. It may be a heaviness, a pressure, a gripping sensation, a burning sensation that originates in the chest area and then sometimes moves out actually into the arms It can go right or left uh, and sometimes up into the neck, jaw, or out into the back. Uh, And so that discomfort oftentimes is triggered by activity. So walking up a flight of stairs, out gardening, shoveling snow, walking up an incline, and that puts a little bit of stress on the heart, and that stress in and of itself is enough to sometimes elicit some of these symptoms. And then patients will say, I just have to stop It eases off and it goes away. And so whenever you start to experience scenarios where things are elicited by some form of exertional stress and seem to resolve with uh, rest, then you need to be concerned, particularly if those symptoms were not there a year ago, six months ago, etc., so that, those, I think, would be the hallmark. And sometimes these episodes are also associated with things like shortness of breath as well. So they'll note that chest discomfort comes on and they get short of breath. They may have some sweating, some nausea or vomiting sensation as well. Now, you asked a really good question. And some of the things that I like to, to make sure that my female patients are aware of is they may not necessarily present in that fashion. That's sort of the classic description of angina. And that was extracted from a lot of the studies done initially on males. When we look at the females, sometimes instead of from a form of physical stress, they'll actually have some of these same symptoms with emotional stressors. So somebody gets on your nerves, somebody pisses you off, and then you start to experience some of those same symptoms, the substernal chest discomfort, the radiation into other uh, areas, neck, jaw, back, uh, et cetera sometimes they'll experience indigestion and they'll say, I, I noticed that whenever I'm exerting myself, I'll get these bouts of indigestion. I take tums and it eases off and I'm fine. Or after meals, they notice when they eat, they get repeated bouts of indigestion that seem to take some time to trail off. Sometimes that in and of itself is a potential sign that they actually have a heart disease that needs to be addressed. So recognizing the fact that they may present differently, they may have different triggers. The indigestion, as we discussed, the emotional uh, triggers are things that I like to make sure that the female patients are aware I mean, they, of course, can present in the classic fashion as well. I do have some patients, sometimes they just have jaw pain with exertion. That's it, nothing else. And so, again, it's paying attention and recognizing that things are different, and you should absolutely bring that up with your primary care physician, and if they are concerned, they will forward you on
0: Man, you are a wealth of information. It's so great to speak with you. And I think that that's so key, what you're saying there is knowing your bodies, recognizing the symptoms and not delaying speaking with our primary and possibly reaching out for a referral, right? That's correct. Absolutely.
1: That's an important feature. And, And ensuring that you have a good relationship with a primary care physician and or cardiologist is key. You want to make sure that you interact with someone who you feel like you you can trust, that they have your best interest in heart. And I think having that good relationship makes things a little bit easier as uh, you may or may not be confronted with scenarios where you need to take a little bit more aggressive action in terms of doing procedures, et cetera. You want to know that individual you're seeing actually has your best interest in heart. And so that's one of the things I really encourage is making sure you establish good relationships and you trust the provider most importantly.
0: And I think I know the answer to this, and we've kind of covered this a little bit, but when we think about ways to prevent cardiac arrest or heart attack, sure, treating those comorbidities, right, being diagnosed for those things, taking cholesterol medicine and blood pressure medicine or whatever it might be, but I want to hear from you, what are your best recommendations to avoid ending up with that precursor heart attack and or cardiac arrest?
1: It's recognizing what the risk factors are, and I'll say them again, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, high fat diet. And then some of the other things that I haven't mentioned, inactivity, couch potato type, not necessarily going out and trying to exercise and really get your heart rate up for an extended period of time. The other things to mention is family history. And so I'll touch on all of those things briefly. In particular, with the diabetes, one of the numbers that we tracked is something called A1C, And that gives us a sense as to how high your blood sugars are running. We want that A1C as low as possible, as close to 6.5. If you can get it below 6, even better as possible for those patients. And that oftentimes tracks with the propensity to go on and develop some of the bad complications associated with diabetes. So if you already have the disease, your goal now is to really try to do what you can to keep that A1C down and your primary care physicians can help guide you in that fashion. The other things uh, we talked about, hypertension, right? And so particularly in black and brown communities, sometimes they are on more agents and have a harder time uh, actually controlling their blood pressure. And so it's paying attention to your blood pressure, being aware of the blood pressure medications you're on and ensuring that you are checking it at regular intervals uh, such that you are tracking in the normal range and not running high. That's another thing that can contribute uh, to the development of heart disease. High cholesterol, making sure that you are being followed, taking the appropriate medications and have annual checks on that lipid levels to ensure that things are not getting out of control. That's another thing that we can try to uh, do to help mitigate the likelihood that we will develop heart disease. The other things to mention are activity. right? And so the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology really recommends 30 minutes of exercise Five days a week. And that's at moderate intensity. And so I generally describe if you know, myself and the patient were out for exercising, that we would want it such that we were having a little difficulty completing sentences, but we couldn't sing if we wanted to. So you want to be stressing your heart appropriately so that you're getting the most out of that exercise activity. And that's 30 minutes, preferably in- interrupted, but there's some data to suggest that even if you spread it out throughout the day, you are still getting that benefit. The other thing to mention is diet we talked about avoiding a high fat, simple sugar, high carb diet. And some of the diets that I recommend for people are uh, the Mediterranean diet or the anti-inflammation diet. And really what has been shown to to be the best for actually reversing heart disease and reversing or reversing diabetes in and of itself is a plant-based whole food diet. And so those are three of the diets that I really recommend for my patients to try to change their trajectory. And the last thing I would say is, if you have a strong family history of heart disease, that's something that you need to pay attention to. You're, you're likelihood of going on to develop the heart disease is uh, significantly increased and in that scenario risk stratification becomes extremely important and so that is seeing your provider making them aware of your family history and sometimes they will opt to treat you more aggressively and by that sometimes they'll send you for some screening tests, things like coronary artery calcium score to help and try identify any disease before it becomes an issue and I think that's a good strategy the last thing I would say is again if you have a strong family history you may want to learn how to do CPR. And I think so that if you're ever in a scenario where you have to provide it for a family member, you can do good efficient cpr to help save their life that becomes a positive thing there so those are the things that i would really recommend from that standpoint
0: yeah and it's uh, like you read my mind because i was going to ask you next if we encounter someone uh, whether it's a family member friend or someone at the grocery store who appears to be in uh, cardiac arrest or suffering from a heart attack uh, what do we do what's our first move
1: yeah so i think number one is call ems try to get them uh, to the scene as fast as possible if you're at home and you have aspirin in the house if you have four baby aspirin you can have them chew the four baby aspirin and try to swallow it that's if they're awake enough to, to be able to follow commands and then checking to make sure that they still have pulses if they don't have pulses then initiating good CPR uh, is the way to go until the EMS can get there and take over and I would say that those are the things in that order again EMS if you have aspirin try to get the patient to use that if they're conscious enough to interact with you and if they're not check pulses if they don't have pulses, then we need to start uh, administering CPR.
0: Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, it's probably good for all of us to know how to do CPR, but especially if we have family members who have a family history, genetic uh, predisposition. As we wrap up here, doctor, what would be your takeaways when we think about heart attacks, cardiac arrest, and what we can do for ourselves and each other?
1: I I think the, the ultimate point is pay attention to your body and don't ignore. If you have any things that are a little concerning, don't just chalk it up to old age definitely seek counsel, touch base with your primary care physicians, uh, and establish good rapport with your primary care physicians so that you feel comfortable in knowing that they're trying to do the right thing for you. I, I would say that those are probably the best things in addition to all of the ways that we can modify the risk factors like we discussed earlier in the podcast.
0: Yeah, I think you're so right. And it's just so funny as you get to be a certain age and you just start dismissing everything as old age. Doctor, so educational, so awesome today. Thank you so much for your time and you stay well. You too. Thanks again for the opportunity. This episode is sponsored by UM Capital Region Health, the largest health care provider in Prince George's County, dedicated to enhancing the health and wellness of the community by providing high quality, accessible patient care. UM Capital Region Health, changing up health care in Prince George's County. And thank you for listening to Live Greater, a health and wellness podcast brought to you by the University of Maryland Medical System. We look forward to you joining us again.